Acts chapter 11. We will be finishing Acts chapter 11 this morning. We're in the second half of that chapter. The title of this message is When We Became Us. When We Became Us is the title of this message. Acts chapter 11, we'll start in verse 19. We'll read to the end of the chapter and then we'll get into it. I will be reading and teaching from the NIV this morning. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we ask together that your goodness toward us and our world, and our lives, and our church would be evident today as we study your word. We ask that we would have eyes to see clearly what you want us to see, and that we'd have ears to hear clearly what you want us to hear. And we ask that as we are in your holy presence this morning, you would give us grace so that we might be brave enough to truly open our hearts before you to what it is you want to do in us, what it is you want to do through us. For we believe you because the Bible says we believe you to be good and always good and good to us. So help us experience that and have hope for that in your word this morning. And we just ask together, please, Lord, that by grace you would help me to teach and preach. I want to teach and preach in a way that is humble and faithful to the Bible and faithful to what you want to do in this church. So please fill me with your spirit and help me to serve you in this church well this morning. We ask it together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I was recently um, the guest on a podcast. I, I've never really heard any podcasts. Uh, I've heard one podcast. Mike Summers shared a podcast with me on hunting one time. 
Uh, I don't have an iPhone. I don't have internet at home. So I don't have many opportunities to do things like listen to podcasts. But I was invited to be on one. And it was a surf podcast. It was about surfing and the surf industry and surf culture. And so I sat down with this guy this week and I was being interviewed. And the interviewer, right off the bat, asked me about the death of my daughter, Daisy. And he wanted to know how that experience had shaped me, my wife, and our family for good. He asked me point blank, what good has come from your daughter's suffering and passing? I was a little taken aback by the whole thing. Because, first of all, the thing was supposed to be about surfing. It's a surf podcast. Let's talk about surfing. So I wasn't prepared for, like, the deep stuff, you know what I mean? And uh, it just felt a little personal and immediate to me. But I'm actually really thankful for it. Because it got me thinking about some stuff that I, I realize I've neglected to think much about lately. It, re- it reminded me of the fact that as God's people, we should always expect God to do good redemptive things through the bad things that we experience in this lifetime. We've got to remember that fact. As God's people, we should always expect God to do good and redemptive things through even the worst things that we experience in this lifetime. That's part of Christian hope. But that sentiment is not unique only to Christians. You know, our world sort of talks about this stuff in different ways and kind of makes up little sayings like, whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Stuff like that, you know what I mean? Every cloud has a silver lining. Um, Look on the bright side of things. Uh, When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Stupid stuff like that. But as Christians, if what we believe about God and our relationship to him is true, then we should always actually expect some good to follow the bad that we experience. As Christians, if what we believe about God is true, then we should always expect some sort of good to follow the bad that we experience. After all, our favorite verse is Romans 8.28. Look it up if you don't know it. And the Bible talks about this in all sorts of different, really bold ways. And there's a lot of passages that we could look at. But think about what James wrote. James wrote this in the first chapter of his epistle. He said this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now that goes far beyond the platitudes of our culture. That's not just a nice saying, lemons into lemony. That's like some some really deep, super bold stuff. Consider it pure joy. Couldn't you just say like joy-ish? No, pure joy when you face all sorts of trials. It tells us explicitly that our faith as Christians will be tested. That's supposed to be part of the expected Christian experience. As Christians, our faith will be tested. God is up to something in that. It doesn't pull any punches when it tells us things like persevere. You know, persevere is a bad word. You never say persevere about good things like 
You just got to persevere through that bowl of ice cream. <laughs> just got to persevere and keep surfing. Like, you don't say that about good things. When you hear the word persevere, you know, oh, this is going to suck. It's going to be a bad thing. It's going to last too long. If I have to persevere, this is too long and it's not good. The Bible's honest with us. There's going to be a lot of those experiences in life. But then the Bible gives us this promise that God is up to something in our suffering. Let it have its full work, it says. And if suffering has its full work with God's sovereign help in our lives, then we will become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. There'll be a maturity that comes to our life. There'll be a more full expression of who we're meant to be in God. And we will gain something that we were previously lacking. And if we take this and the rest of Scripture together, I think we can actually say that in a way, we only ever become fully us through hard things. And this text is the story of us becoming us Christians through hard things. Look at verse 19 again, and let's see how how difficult it is, really. Verse 19 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Now, that's just a sentence, and we just read it, and it's history for 2,000 years ago, from 2,000 years ago. So it's hard for us to feel it, but that represents some real pain and difficulty there, right? It talks about the time that Stephen was killed. We studied that in Acts chapter 7. I mean, Stephen was like one of their number, right? He was a member of their church, like as if someone from our number here was killed, and he was brutally and ruthlessly killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was a great guy. Right, we learn from Acts chapter 7 that the Bible says there that Stephen was full of the Spirit. He was full of faith. He was full of wisdom. He was full of grace. He was full of power. By every stretch of the word, he was a good man. And his being brutally killed for his faith in Jesus is a great example of when bad things happen to good people. The church experienced that in a very brutal way. Good things happen, bad things happening to good people. And so there would have come this real sense to the church at the death of Stephen, this sense of injustice and powerlessness because the people that put him to death were doing so as representatives of the governing, ruling religious authority who is deeply entrenched and ingrained and had thousands of years of authority in Israel. So there was nothing that this upstart group of Messiah followers were going to be able to do in the face of this. So they must have felt incredibly powerless. They had no way to pursue retribution. There was no legal course of action. A tremendous injustice. And to make matters worse then, certain powers were then emboldened at the murder of Stephen. 
Right, you would hope, oh, Steve, an isolated incident. This was terrible. We lost one of our guys. Like, he served all of us in the church and made sure we all had what we need when we needed it. And, you know, he was this great evangelist and God did miracles through him. And now he's gone, okay, but maybe things are going to get better. But things only got worse, we're told, in the book of Acts. Now persecution broke out wholesale, broad scale, against the rest of the church. So not only are they feeling this powerlessness in the face of tremendous injustice, but now it also seems like evil's winning. And it felt for so many months in this new movement like Jesus was winning, but now persecution breaks out and he begins to feel like evil is winning. Because as we're told, in the face of that persecution, the believers in Jerusalem had to scatter. And we're told where they went to as far as Antioch. This is now several hundred miles away from Jerusalem. They've been displaced from where they lived, where they grew up, what they knew, their income, their place of business, their relationships, their families, their networks, everything that they knew that they felt and smelt and held. They've been removed from all of it. And now they're refugees. That's the definition of a refugee. Someone who's fleeing something like persecution and is now in a foreign place. So there's this tremendous sense of powerlessness in the face of horrific injustice. Begins to feel like evil is on the march and even winning. And now they are displaced refugees. And this is where the story could really linger in a bad place. It's not an uncommon story even in our world today. But this is where the story could linger in a really tough place with the church as displaced victims of injustice. But what the text tells us is that God was busy writing a different story in, through, and for his people. God was actually writing a different story than merely what they saw and experienced unfolding. This text reminds us that God is always writing a more beautiful story than what we're currently experiencing. For you, God is writing a better story than simply the things that have happened to you that have been unjust. And you know, I think that the church here is doing their best to try to hold on to that hope that God is writing a different story here, that he's still in control, and they're doing their best to try to live into it. They're trying to live into that story. Again, we revisit a portion of the text where it says they were spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Remember, there's now this new movement of the gospel going to the Gentiles, as we saw from last week, telling them the good news about Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So it's commendable that there was this general sense of mission for the church that had experienced this injustice, this displacement, and this confrontation with evil. They're still trying to live into what Jesus had told them to do, to be witnesses. They're still pressing into it. Most of them weren't pressing that far. They're still only taking the good news to the Jews. But remember, Jesus said they were to preach the gospel and take this good news to all the nations. And there's a couple here who see things more clearly. 
everyone's doing basically a good job. They're living into the mission. They're living into the story that God's trying to write through them. But some of them, however, it says, they see things more clearly. They weren't only engaged. They were super engaged. They were pushing the gospel to new frontiers. And I love it because it means that this church refused to take on the identity as just refugees, as just victims. And they actually became now adventurers with God on the front lines of what God was doing. I mean, these, some of them saw things more clearly and they became adventurers with God on the front lines of what God was doing. You know, there is a bleeding edge of God's work somewhere in our world right now. Someplace amongst the unreached, there is a bleeding edge, a frontier of what God was doing. This was a frontier at this time in history. They were like on the frontier. But there's also a frontier somewhere in our community. There's frontiers amongst your family and your friends, some bleeding edge, some frontline thing of what God is wanting to do in people. And they saw things clearly in the sense that God is up to something here and they became adventurers with God in it. And when they did that, they discovered what the book of Acts has been reminding us. They discovered that God was with them. Verse 21, it says, the Lord's hand was with them. Man, we keep getting that lesson in the book of Acts. That God is always with us and always working. Doesn't always feel that way. Doesn't always seem that way. Can't always seem to see it. But God is always present and active in our lives. And God's blessing rested upon them. And I want us to notice this from that. I want us to notice that when they, when we here as the church, stepped into a very, very rough place, they found God to be be in that hard place. In their displacement, they found God to be there. In their flee from the march of evil, they found God to be there with them. In their sense of powerlessness and injustice, they found God to be with them. Just like Jesus said he would. Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end. And now they begin to see emerge the story that God is writing through their pain. Because good things happen. From really bad things, good things start to happen. Right? We read in one verse, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, when you find those little nuggets, you got to stop and you got to hold on to them. Because our life is like this. There's some really dark parts to the story, some really difficult places of pain and suffering. But when you see a little ray of light, this essentially says, but look what God is doing. Many people were getting saved. And at some point, the Christian woman, the Christian man has to say, Jesus and his mission of saving people is worth the pain I've experienced. That's a sober, big boy, big girl thing to say. We've got to look at those rays of light. And then we see further this good coming from their difficulties. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is where we were becoming us, Christians, the church, 
the community of believers. This is where we were becoming us. And what I want us to see is that we were becoming us through unjust, hard, sad circumstances. We were becoming us through those things. God was making us who we were always meant to be. We were first called Christians at Antioch. This is a story of us becoming us. And it's beautiful because we could have become so many things in light of our suffering, in light of the injustice and the powerlessness and the displacement. We could have become so many other things because so many bad things happened to us. We could have become fearful. That would have been an understandable response. We could have become fearful people that begin to live out of and function from fear. Because so many things, bad things had happened to us. We could have become bitter people, ruled by bitterness, defiling others through our bitterness, living out of that bitter place because so many bad things had happened to us. We could have become so many other things. We could have become inward and insular where we just kind of hunker down and shut the doors and we no longer live open, but we live closed inward life because so much pain had come from out here. We could have remained victims and refugees because we were wronged, we were wounded, and we were wandering. But we became Christians. Here's why that's profound. We did not take the name for ourselves. That wasn't our idea. It doesn't say in the Bible that we said, look, people in Antioch want you to call us Christians. That's what you call us from now on. Here we are. We didn't take the name for ourselves. We wandered in a foreign land with a lot of pain and a lot of wounds and a lot of disappointment. And as the people of that land watched us, there was something in the way that we were that caused them to take the title Christos in the Greek, anointed one, Messiah for Jesus, and make it a name for us. There was something that the way that, of, about the way that we lived through and out of this suffering that caused them to look at us and say, like Christ. It's a big deal. Now, there are historians who say that this name was given to the Christians, to the church, by the residents in Antioch as a means of derision, as a means of of mocking them, that it was pejorative in its use. May I be mocked for being like Jesus. Those who observed God's people in this city could not escape the fact that everything for them came back to the person of Jesus. So they called them Christians, Christians. And whether it is meant in derision or it was simply a statement of fact or whatever it was, it meant that we 
were arriving. We were becoming us. And we must get from the text, we only ever became us through hard things. And we didn't suffer alone. Jesus was there. And somehow in the strange economy of God that I don't think can really be explained, it can only be admitted that it's in Scripture. Somehow in the strange economy of God, in our suffering, we found real meaning and purpose in life. Can't necessarily be defended or carefully explained. Can only be admitted that it's in Scripture. We became us through hard things. And in that suffering, as we leaned into the story that God might be writing, we found deeper meaning and great purpose in our being. And God's hand was on us. And by living for and into Jesus' mission, and not just out of our pain and the injustice imposed upon us, we transcended. Odd word, I know. Here's what I mean. Persecution had happened to us. We had lost and lost greatly. There was no escaping the reality of that. Nothing was going to bring some of those things back. We lived through it. We had to. And we realized this, and I'll put the statement on the screen. You know you have been made more fully formed into the image of Christ when it ceases to be about what happened to you and becomes about what is happening to others. That's transcendence. That's rising above. That's being more fully formed into the image of Christ when by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, it ceases to be about what happened to us and it even becomes about what is happening to others. Don't you see that that's how the story goes? In verse 27, again, it says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did. Do you see the transcendence? Do you see how they had risen above their circumstances and what happened to them and what they suffered? And how they've chosen not to live out of disappointment or to live as victims or to live from a place of fear, they're not going to be ruled forever by what happened to them. Because it would be really easy at this point as refugees in this faraway place to just begin to close off. Here's a danger in suffering. Suffering can have the effect of hardening and closing us. So that in everything that we do, we live from a scarcity model. 
because we're ruled by what we lost and no longer have. So we live from a sense of scarcity emotionally, an inability to give ourselves away relationally, a need to keep and to gather with regards to resources. The danger of suffering is it can make us hard, closed, inward, and insular. But the hope that we have in Jesus about suffering is that it can actually make us open, compassionate, and generous. Where we no longer are ruled by what we lost and no longer have, but we live out of who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, and what we have in him. Now, I don't think it was an easy decision in verse 29, we'll put it up on the screen again, for them necessarily to give those things away. Man, they left their businesses and their homes and all their stuff. They're in a foreign land. I'm sure that it's difficult for them to make ends meet. And it would be easy for them to say, we're not going to worry about the church in Judea right now. Look what we've just been through. They're close to Jerusalem after all. They didn't flee. They're near home base. We're out here suffering through these things. Be really easy, again, to begin to live that way, closed, insular, inward, from scarcity. And there is a choice we have to make. And we have to make the choice based on who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the hope we have for them, for, in him. They said we will not live out of perceived scarcity or fear or bitterness or what happened to us. It's going to be about what's happening to others. We're open to that. We will be compassionate toward that and even generous. This is when we became us. Because nothing better represents Jesus than generosity. Nothing better represents God than generosity. For God so loved the world, he gave. On the cross, Jesus gave his life for us. Few things represent God, Christ, better than generosity. I think that's why the surrounding community looked at them and said, huh, Christians. I think what was happening for them was what James spoke of. We revisit it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. This is when we became us, mature, complete, and not lacking. And I want us to just not forget that it only happened through really difficult things. And that's encouraging because really difficult things happen to us in our lives. And in Jesus, we realize then that they're not meaningless. There's not a lack of purpose. We realize that Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a real thing. 
It's not a platitude. It's not some easily said thing. It's a real deep truth that speaks of the power of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, and the kindness of God toward us. So then we have hope to live out of that place and transcend merely what's happened to us. And I think to do that is a discipline. I think to do that is a discipline. A discipline about who Jesus is. That's why it says in Colossians chapter 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's a discipline to keep our mind on heavenly things. Here's what I don't think it means. I don't think it means like picturing what heaven's going to be like, like awesome surf and rainbows and unicorns and flashes of lightning and all this stuff. I think it's keeping our minds fixed on the essence and the quality of what heaven represents, Jesus And it is inescapable that the essence and the quality of Jesus is that he gave himself. He also suffered injustice. He also faced the march of evil. He also was displaced and rejected. And in the face of it, Jesus gave himself. And that's the essence of what we're called to, to be ruled by those realities rather than the reality of the way this world works and its hopelessness. That's why Ephesians 5 says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what would it look like this week to actually do that? Some of you are having really hard times. There's some people in our church that are having really, really hard times right now. For all of us, what would it look like to be like Jesus this week? To walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Is there anyone within your sphere of influence or that you've heard of beyond your immediate reach that you can be a Christian to? That you can be a Christian to? Judea was pretty far now from where they were in Antioch, but they were going to be Christians to the brothers and sisters in Judea. Anyone near you that you can be a Christian to and love with the love that Christ has given you? And I think in doing that, we're going to be confronted with places that God lovingly wants to deal with. We're going to begin to identify where we're living out of a scarcity model because of fear, because of bitterness, because of being ruled by what has happened to us and is happening to us rather than becoming who we are in Christ. And the last thing I'll say is to just remember that in their very, very dark time, Jesus was right there in the midst of it. Jesus is there in the hardest places. There's no way to get around some of them in life. You just got to walk into them as dark as they are. 
And I have discovered, and we will discover, that Jesus is there in the hardest places. And he's faithful. And he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And he's good. Lord, thank you for these truths from your word. We trust now together, Lord, as we seek you in prayer and worship and taking the Lord's Supper together. We trust the Holy Spirit, you will minister to us these truths. We prayed in the beginning that we would be brave enough to open up our hearts for you to work on today. Help us to stick with that now, Lord, to have open hearts before you. Lovingly confront those places that we're living out of that we ought not to. Help us to transcend what's happened to us and live for the hope that we have in you that we might be a great help to others, Jesus, even as you have been to us. As we take communion today, help us to remember the cross, to be formed by the truth of the cross, the great love of God that's been brought to us through the sacrifice of Christ. As we pray together today with a prayer team, God, would you be near to those who are suffering? We pray together now for those who feel hopeless today, that Jesus, you would be their hope and anchor to their souls. The Spirit, you'd reveal Jesus in a more deep and wonderful way and bring hope to the hopeless this morning. For Christ, we just simply believe the Bible, that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you're working all things according to your will. Help us to live into that beautiful story that you're writing in us and through us and for us, Lord. Please, God. Please, God.